0: I'm Nancy, and I'm Katherine, and this is Side Effects.
1: So we never thought we'd be here. When lockdown started, it felt like things would be back to normal in a couple weeks, which turned to a couple months, which turned to half a year.
0: And just when things started to look like they were improving, a second wave hit America, which we are still in the middle of as we record this.
1: The future still feels uncertain. Schools are beginning to reopen in some parts of the country, and more and more people are taking pictures at the beach in restaurants. Maybe these are early signs of life returning to normal Or maybe they're what happens right before a third wave.
0: In addition, a vaccine is looking very possible for 2021. But how effective will it be? Who will get it first? To call upon this podcast title, will there be side effects?
1: All this as we're headed into an election. The last half of this year in America will be crucial for deciding what our future looks like. It feels like the second to last episode of your favorite TV show when you don't know if it's going to be renewed. There's so much left to tie up, and what happens next could be what you're left with. So with that, this week we're looking at two of
0: our guests at a moment when things seem to be getting better, but it's still not enough. We're giving Jonathan and Jerry from Sulting a break this week, so instead we'll be talking to two people who have found a lot of hope in their message, but to start, We're going to hear from Jordan, who, when we left off, we were talking about how he and his team co-organized the first walkout at an Amazon warehouse in response to poor working conditions during the pandemic. The strike garnered significant media coverage and caught the attention of Amazon executives. It also caught the attention of major public figures like Bill de Blasio, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and Cory Booker. Here's Jordan talking about Booker's involvement.
2: He actually was able to shut down New Jersey's warehouse and have it clean and have them stay home for two weeks' pay. And when he got on a conference call with him, it showed that now politics, even with our mayor politics, but a senator, now we're getting other political figures. We actually had Bernie Sanders' team contact us.
0: Having these big names show support for them really opened Jordan's eyes to what was possible through organizing. After the initial walkout, they reconvened to discuss what would come after.
2: It exceeded. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, we were just trying to keep this on a, a Staten Island JFK warehouse to executives type of business. But they, like I said, they, tried, they, they threw us out on the media. They, they bashed Chris. So it, w- it was a bad thing. So, you know, to have all these big names stand with us, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, you never know who's listening. You never know who's watching. And you never know who's supporting behind the cameras or behind the media. You never know.
0: The team also had to deal with the backlash from Amazon. As we mentioned previously, Vice News leaked a memo from the company that detailed a smear campaign against Chris Smalls, another one of the leaders in the walkout. In it, they called him not smart and inarticulate.
2: And we we, we had to look at each other and like, did they really have to take it this far? Like we, we tried to keep it on a simple, you know, a simple business level. Between me, between JFK8 workers, well, the protesters, us four, the media, and the executives. But no, you, you made a remark. You said stuff that shouldn't have never been said. And now the whole world knows how you treat your workers. Basically, by you saying that one man is unorganized and not articulate, you're saying 749,999 workers are not smart and articulate. You just basically said all your co-workers are dumb. Not the executives, just your, your warehouse workers. You you just called us out all dumb. Now we're like I said we're we're confused and now we're angry because we're not we're not dumb you know we're we're, we're not dumb. You seen what we did we made noise we had four other warehouses walk out right after us. That means our message is being spread across to the West Coast. That means what we did made a lot of noise. We organized that we were being smart about our plan. We had lawyers talking to us to make sure we did everything on the legal terms so that Amazon can't really hit us. That we were already prepared. That Amazon is going to start retaliating after that vice uh, that vice leak message.
0: Still, they had made some progress. By April 13th, Amazon had begun providing workers with face masks. Up until that point, they had to bring their own. Amazon also began to give them more time to clean their workstations. Around this time, Amazon began releasing commercials that boasted about these efforts. One employee featured in the commercials described it like working at the chocolate factory. Another said, if anything, they took it overboard on the safety.
2: We laughed because this, this Amazon does anything to make us look bad right now. And Amazon put out thousands of commercials to make us look bad. After my one commercial with New York Times, they put out even more to make it seem like they're doing fine. Actually, there was a, a commercial where the dude said, it's too much safety. There's no such thing as too much safety. You can't overboard on safety. So we laughed about it. Me, Chris, Derek, and Gerald, we laughed about it. And then we discussed it like it's just one of their their game changes and their manipulations to tell the media, the customers, the world, that uh, they support us after George Floyd. Um, They just didn't didn't want that, that, uh, how can I put it, They didn't want the red dot or the target on their back no more after what they said about Chris Moles. So that's why we really laughed, that Amazon said that, but also did that to Chris Smalls.
0: When the Black Lives Matter protests began at the end of May, Amazon released a brief statement which read, The inequitable and brutal treatment of Black people in our country must stop. Together we stand in solidarity with the Black community, our employees, customers, and partners, in the fight against systemic racism and injustice. Jordan responded on Twitter saying, Amazon fired multiple Black people who wanted to protect these workers and called a Black man not smart and articulate on live TV.
2: And you fired a dude, say he's not smart and articulate, but then, like I said, go, by, go behind uh, the media and say, be support of Black lives. You can't do that. You can say as much Black lives as you want, but what you did to the media, what you did to Chris Smalls, it's gonna forever be out there now. It's forever gonna be out there. So also being that we laughed about it, it was also anger that now you're trying to use a black man, George Floyd, to say black lives matter. It's just not right.
0: while Amazon and Jeff Bezos publicly share sympathy with the Black Lives Matter movement, they are, of course, complicit in the violence against communities of color. In 2018, Amazon sold facial recognition technology to police forces, a technology which inherently targets people of color by incorrectly identifying their faces. The ACLU ran a study where they showed the technology the faces of every congressman, It identified 28 of them as matches for people accused of crimes based on mugshots on file. Although these 28 are a mix of white and non-white congressmen, it is disproportionately targeted against those of color. One of those identified was recently deceased civil rights legend John Lewis. In addition, their automated doorbell service, Ring, has been criticized for being used by police to surveil and target people of color. And Amazon has also been known to sell web hosting services to immigration and customs enforcement.
2: They're saying this. They're saying Black Lives Matter or they're doing this, they're doing that. That's great. But people are going to start to forget. It's going to wipe up their mind that they fired a Black man on TV. They said he's not smart and articulate. So all we're doing is putting it right back in their ears. You want to be like a record. You want to keep repeating it and repeating it. And... We just, we, just want, we just want everyone to know that if you work for Amazon or you're a customer, you need to support us now. Not support Bezos, support what we're doing. That we're trying to protect your families from getting sick from the coronavirus. We're trying to show you that these executives and this, this man is racist.
0: Throughout all this, Jordan has remained with the company, but his relationship is tense. As we discussed in his first episode... He thought of his job as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But just because it's hard to come by doesn't mean it's perfect. In fact, working in the place probably has given Jordan a better insight than most into how Amazon fails to live up to its promises. His life is very different now, and he's very busy being Amazon's most difficult employee.
2: I was having interviews left and right almost every other hour. I couldn't even go outside to get some fresh air. I was on the phone with the media almost 24 seven. You would have thought I worked in the office on phone calls all day. Uh, then at, you know, after these, then we started doing live streams. As I said, I did a live stream with Shama Sawan, me and Chris. I did, another, I did another live stream with a professor from Rutgers. I even did an interview with him. Then more reporters started coming. It, it was just, if you were sitting in the rain and having the rain just fall on you, in the rain, being, them, being that they're reporters, journalists, even some podcasts, that's how much I had on me. That's how much I had on my back, that it could be at any moment, the media will call you and be like, hey, Amazon said something about this. How do you want to respond? Or, you know, Amazon just started saying they're cleaning facilities with alcohol and I would like for you to respond. And it's it was just at. Any moment that you could get a phone call and you would never know who it is, it just became that you never know what what media is calling you, when they're calling you, and what questions they're going to ask you.
0: But all that attention comes with a cost. When Jordan was on leave, he was briefly terminated. He was quickly reinstated, and it was all chalked up to a wrongful termination. But it reminded him what a tenuous grasp he has on his job.
2: It, it just goes to show that. I kept telling the media that, you know, my time is coming, who knows when they're gonna fire me and what they, and how they're gonna fire you. You know, at any moment, Amazon can fire you in a snap of a finger. That, that, that's just the way their motive is and that's how their rules are. That they can fire you whenever they want. They can do whatever they want with you once you sign that contract.
0: That's Jordan Flowers, a robotics technician at Amazon, for the time being. Our next guest is also fighting very vocally for Black Lives Matter, but as an ally and as a mother of two Black sons. Our producer Joshua has this story.
3: Four days after the killing of George Floyd, hundreds of protesters gathered in Lafayette Square, a park just a few hundred feet away from the White House. While it was just one of many protests against police brutality around the nation, it would be the catalyst for a longer series of protests that happened in the coming weeks in Washington, D.C. Allison McGill was at some of those protests while living just a few miles away from all the altercations and the tear gas with the police.
4: And I understand the anger, and I want that anger to be about the possible hangings that are happening or were happening the week after. Want it to be about unarmed black men and women not getting a fair shake and dying. Where is that anchor?
3: Today, we take a pause from Food on the Table and refocus on something deeply personal to Ali. Here, we explore some fundamental questions. What does it mean as an outsider to show solidarity for black lives? And during that first week of June, what was going on in DC We start the story on May 30th, a hot, humid summer day. Allie wasn't doing her usual deliveries for food on the table since she had been with someone who received a COVID test and was not feeling well. So she found a different way to responsibly protest.
4: So I had heard about a car protest um, that the local Black Lives Matter group was putting on. It started in uh, northeast, across the river, and then we um, drove all through the city. I felt very safe, and I felt safe to protest that way. There were some beautiful parts, because it was a huge protest with cars. Um, and we would drive through these places, and I don't know how to describe it, other than it felt like the Hunger Games in some ways, where people would start motioning. I mean. There were older women just crying on the streets and a lot of fists in the air as we drove past.
3: In the Hunger Games, citizens of the totalitarian country called Panem raised their hands in a three-fingered salute, a show of solidarity with those who were protesting against the government.
4: I don't know how to describe it, but being in the protest, all of a sudden, it just felt... Um, Yeah, everybody all of a sudden went to the side of the road and did um, the fist in the air as we drove past and we went through uh, Capitol Hill. Being alive during this time reminds me of the Hunger Games in a lot of ways. Um, It's hard to explain that.
3: Two days later, it was June 1st. The night before, a fire in the basement of St. John's Episcopal Church and continuous protests forced a 7 p.m. curfew time. And 20 minutes before curfew, the police used riot control tactics like tear gas and rubber bullets to clear out the peaceful protests at Lafayette Square. The controversial show of force was to clear the way for President Trump to take a photo in front of the church. And at the same time, state and federal forces began to pour into D.C.
4: And as I was getting home, I started to get texts from friends and started to see on Twitter that friends of mine were down there and had been cleared out by um, tear gas and whatever else they were using. Um, And they were shocked. And we're talking, I mean, for anywhere from reporters to the common protester that are friends of mine that had been there, they were on the scene. So we turned the news on in just shock of what was going on. as the night go on, we're just not sure what's going to happen. Um, at that point, we didn't know about the nameless federal forces, um, but we knew things were going on because Blackhawks kept flying out over our house. We would see the tanks when we were walking around downtown. Allie had called
3: D.C. a police state during this time, and the description seemed to fit. There were armed vehicles, helicopters, and police patrolling the streets, and they were not identifiable. National guards from several states were stationed close by, and active-duty military units were on standby in case more forces were needed. And given the aggressive nature of the police during the protest altercations, Allie was worried about her neighborhood.
4: And so my husband and I decided um, that we would sleep downstairs with the blinds open and the TV on. We have a full view of our corner. Um... I was really worried, again, very invested in my neighborhood. I was really worried about some of the teenagers just walking around, you know, there was a curfew, but just having whatever these federal forces, and we didn't know they were unnamed. We did know there was a lot more in the city at that point because, I mean, just driving around, you could see. Um, Having them just walking around possibly and being in danger from these forces. Um, so we slept down there, I think, four nights, so that way we could have like a presence. And when I say sleep, I, um, I use it very loosely. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of sleeping those first nights.
3: On June 2nd, Allie received news that the COVID test had come back negative and that she no longer had to self-isolate. Still recovering from some painful dental work, Ali still went out to join the protests.
4: The next morning, um, I got up and went to um, protest. Now that I knew I was in the clear, and I'm exhausted, I'm still in pain. And while I'm a white middle-aged woman with all the privilege, my two older sons are young black men. And I had a sign that said, "I'm so tired of worrying about my son's safety." And I was very raw at that moment. And I just remember everybody, it was the end of the protest and everybody was leaving and I just stood there with tears coming down my face with that sign at the police, because while I don't understand the full experience of my black brothers and sisters, I have a small glimpse into the worry of when our kids leave the house. My sons are 19 and 23 and um, it is a constant worry of what if they get that cop? What if, what if they come in contact with that person like Ahmad Arbery? What if the fears are confirmed today? And I just, I stood there with my sign and just bawled and bawled. And as we went, um, walked back to our car, I passed a reporter. And since I have friends that are reporters, I, um, and some that were there the night before that got tear gassed, I thanked him. And I, I thanked him for being there because they need, we need this story out there. And he said, don't worry, it's going to go back to normal soon. And I turned my sign around and I said, sir, I hope it never goes back to normal. Um, and he goes, you're, you're very right. I hope it doesn't go back to normal soon um, because we don't want that normal anymore. Well,
3: Ali has always been aware about racism in America More of the discrimination Black Americans regularly face was illuminated when she adopted two Congolese refugees and welcomed them into her family. Suddenly, as the mother of two Black sons, things that Ali never had to worry about became alarming concerns.
4: When they joined our family, the second day our 19-year-old was with us, he put his hoodie up at Costco in the rain. And I realized how other people looked at him and it dawned on me that this was a different ball game that it was even worse than i thought in one day after having my son in our house for one day and he was 16 at the time and there have been moments in time in our journey where i have been terrified for his safety there was a gas station in arkansas where we just noticed these people leering at him as he walked close to going into a gas station to use the bathroom. Um, and I made my husband and my husband, I mean, I didn't make him. He gladly went and just stood outside the bathroom with him. Um, Cause honestly, I was terrified for the way they were looking at him. Sadly, this is not new. Um, as a white woman, I only have like a pigeonhole into the whole life because I now have black sons. What these things do and the possible hangings is make it ever more real that one night that could be my son. And I've been working with a neighborhood group on um, the police labor union laws in DC, and uh, not laws, contract, um, and just going through things that should be common sense stuff um, to see if we can get enough um, people or traction to get some of these things changed. Um, and then also looking at my own biases, which I'm not immune to, even as the mother of black sons, um, my own, um, my own privilege, which is not new thoughts for me, but it never ends. You know, those thoughts shouldn't ever end. If I truly care about my black brothers and sisters, I will go to the mat with my own mind whenever it's needed.
3: But what does it mean to have an internal dialogue about racism as a person with privilege? What kind of role should a person take when wanting to participate in this medium? During the protest on June 2nd, Ali reflected on what role she and others have on contributing to the fight against racism.
4: We noticed these white guys yelling at Black police officers about racism. And I didn't, we didn't say anything to them. My husband and I thought about it and just how even then, even at a police br- um, brutality protest, it is not the job of the white person to educate the black man on racism. We just thought about that and how the loudest people that we saw or the people trying to be the loudest, trying to be the most obnoxious were white and that perplexed me uh, quite a bit because it again is making the white voice the one heard. There was one guy who was being incredibly loud and obnoxious. I actually stepped in front of him with my sign um, because I was worried he was going to start trouble with the police. That gentleman just seemed to want to be a troublemaker I didn't want him taking over the story. And so I stepped in front of him with my sign, not facing him. He was to my back, but also putting a buffer so that he couldn't cause any trouble with the police officer. So people started to chant George Floyd. And he was putting Rage in the Machine on really loud. Um, And I just turned I turned around and started yelling George Floyd louder than his music because that's why we were there. We weren't there for his, whatever he wanted to make the protest about. And he called me names and everything, but we were there for Black lives. Mm -hmm.
3: since that first week of june protests have variably continued to happen months after the incident at Lafayette square throughout all of that alley and food on the table have continued to operate despite the curfew the protests and the police
4: i just wanted it to be we are standing alongside not we are the saviors we are the loud ones we are Standing for your pain without making it about us.
1: That's Allie McGill. We didn't get a chance to catch up on her work with Food on the Table this week. But if you want to get involved or show support, you can do so at foodonthetabledc.com That's DC as in District of Columbia. Coming up, Like we mentioned at the top of the hour, we're giving Jonathan and Jerry the week off, but we'll be hearing instead from two people who have found a lot of hope in their project during these difficult times. Last time on our episode with One Salting, we talked about some of the initiatives they had started as well as the growth they'd seen since COVID-19 began. This week, instead of hearing from Jonathan and Jerry, we thought we'd talk to two other members of the One community, those whose job prospects were impacted, to learn what happened and how they reacted.
5: My heart hurt when I was informed that my job at LinkedIn was postponed until January, 2021. Last year at graduation, my worst nightmare was my temp visa expiring before finding a job. Now paperwork is actually going to get complicated.
1: This is Basant Shinoda, a content creator on LinkedIn and YouTube, and a consulting mentee. Not long ago, she made this post on LinkedIn talking about some of the challenges and uncertainty she was facing with her upcoming job.
5: It's sad that the first thing that came to my mind was to blame me. If only I had done things differently. I kept thinking you're going to be almost 24 next year, graduated a year and a half ago. You lost out on so much time. I am incredibly worried, but putting myself down will not help my uncontrollable circumstances. Regrets won't either. Taking the time to process that really changed my perspective. Instead, I will use this time and opportunity to continue to help my community thrive in these difficult times and to remind you that your circumstances do not define you. During my long job search, all I said to you all was my time will come. And then I stopped when I got my job. But let me remind you again, our time will come. We will be okay. Yeah. (laughs) Getting a bit emotional. (laughs) It was two months ago.
1: Basant's from Egypt, currently living in Germany. When the pandemic first struck, she tried to get a visa to go back home to her parents, but didn't end up making it back before the borders closed.
5: So she was stuck in Berlin, quarantining completely by herself. So I think the first few months, I was in like complete isolation. Um, of course, I couldn't even visit my friends. All my local friends who are German, also here in Berlin, all went back to their cities, wherever they, their families are. I think the only thing I would do was go grocery shopping, and just the air in the stores was awful, because everyone was so scared, understandably so. But very anxiety driven, unfortunately, and it was just a lot for one person by themselves. Um, And then unfortunately, I had a job lined up for this summer at LinkedIn. So I was, um, I was going to immigrate to Ireland, but with all the circumstances, unfortunately, that was postponed until next year. Um, So things are very uncertain, especially because my visa here in Germany was riding on this new job. So all of a sudden, (laughs) I'm by myself. I don't have a job lined up as I thought originally at the time. I need to figure out my visa situation. So it was very overwhelming.
1: Basant first met Jonathan, the founder of One Salting, a year ago, when they were both creating content on LinkedIn and talking about their respective job search struggles.
5: Slowly, we just started getting to know each other. And Jonathan specifically has um, been very critical in me getting my new job at LinkedIn, but also while I was doing internships. And so he was very supportive of like if I had a problem or something like that, like a huge mentor to me in my life. But I also consider them very close friends, so like almost family.
1: As Basant describes it, LinkedIn a couple years ago was mostly CEOs and big founders, people who were already successful to create and share content about failures and things that didn't go well
5: wasn't so common. I was just sharing more of the struggles and the rejections part of everything. So I would hop on after an interview and be like, that didn't go well, I'm going to improve in this way. And people found value in that because I was speaking about my failure, but also because I was helping people through what I was going through. No one was telling my community that it was okay to fail and get rejected and that you just need to try again. It's a normal part of life. Um, And I just wanted to provide that to people Especially from a positivity standpoint,
1: that content struck a chord with people, especially students, women, and immigrants, who too were struggling.
5: So I've spoken about like immigration, and I've had like um, a man who's like my dad's age uh, from South America message me and say like this made him teary-eyed because it reminded him of his own story, and it's become common for especially other women to message me and tell me that whenever they're feeling upset about rejection, they'll like read my posts or watch my YouTube videos and it kind of empowers them to keep going Um, and also to try again, like put out more applications. And regardless of where you're from or regardless of what your story is, we have these pillars in our life of, you know, circumstances, failure, rejection, all these topics that we can all resonate with regardless of your age.
1: Since COVID-19 hit, Basan has shared with her LinkedIn network bits and pieces of her situation, including an eviction notice, visa issues, and job postponement and uncertainty. But through all of this, the underlying message of her posts remained the same.
5: Sometimes I feel like these problems are sent to me because I will use them to support other people. So when I got my job postponed, um, I told my LinkedIn community, I was like, it's tough, but we're going to get through this. When I got my eviction notice, I was like, I can't deal with this, but we're going to we're have to. It's going to be okay. Um, and I just get to support people through my own whatever is going on. And the nice thing is people find hope in my struggles, that even though I'm going through this and they're going through this, we'll get through it together.
1: After her job was postponed, one of the ways Basant found hope for herself was by starting her own career coaching business. It was something she'd entertained in the past, and with the extra time she now had,
5: she thought she'd give it a try. I'm very introverted actually, so I spend a lot of time just listening to people, trying to understand people. Um, that's kind of like my superpower. And I've had people cry in my sessions because they feel understood, they feel listened to, Um, Especially right now with so much anxiety, a lot of job seekers don't have someone they can speak to or they don't have kind of like a support system that understands or isn't pressuring them. Um, So I feel like I really deliver on that with my coaching sessions.
1: Since April, Basant has coached over 80 clients through her business. And though she's always been invested in spreading positivity through her content, her business has opened up new possibilities for her longer term.
5: For me, it's making people more resourceful and less fearful, which I also feel is my life purpose in general. Um, If you're comparing yourself, it translates to when you're interviewing. If you don't think you are an impactful individual with value, it's going to translate to your resume. That's kind of what I noticed a lot with my clients is how you perceive yourself and how you kind of try to go about the process is reflected in every single, every single thing that you do. So a lot of my work is diving deep into if your resume isn't impactful, why do you not, like, what are you doing? So it's not that way. If you're speaking to a professional, why are you scared of it? So I give them the foundation to not just get a job, but to also have a very successful career.
6: my name is Jonavi Goody. At One Salting, I work on special projects and strategy. Giovanni
1: is a recent grad from Oakland University in Michigan. She was set to start as a risk consultant at KPMG in May. But after COVID hit, her start date was pushed back.
6: So we didn't really know like, okay, this was when you would be starting. Like there was no clarity on anything. And, you know, I'm a recent grad and this is my first full-time job. So there was that stress of, oh my god, what is going to happen to my professional career? Because, you know, I had all these things lined up and now everything is just kind of like starting to crumble. And so it was very, um, yeah, very nerve-wracking at first. Looking for
1: opportunities, Giovanni took to LinkedIn, thinking she could do something to build her skills, while also helping businesses who were in need. One of those companies that she came across was One Salting.
6: I was just scrolling through my feed one day and I saw a comment that Jonathan had commented on someone's post and it was like a one sulting link to like their speaker series. And I was curious and I clicked on it and you know how you go down the rabbit hole on once you start clicking into something and that's how I came across what they were doing. And that minute on I knew I would do anything I could to help them drive their business impact and you know, see how I could be a part of it.
1: For Giovanni. There was no question about why Winsulting was the organization she wanted to help.
6: I'm an underdog. I go to a non-target school, um, Oakland University in Michigan. We're a very small, small small-scale school. And there's a lot of other great schools in Michigan, such as U of M, Michigan State, that overshadow all the other schools. And for me personally, like, Trying to break into tech, trying to get those interviews or get into the companies that I wanted to get into. It wasn't as easy as some of my other friends that were going to U of M or Michigan State. They would have recruiters that would be in contact with them nonstop. Whereas at our university, like they didn't even recruit. Like if they by any chance came to our university, it was rare every like once in five years or 10 years. And so I realized that it doesn't really matter if they come to your university or not. It's how you network and how you position yourself. And so I learned that my sophomore junior year and worked very hard to get the roles and internships that I've had since then. But I've come to realize that like it doesn't have to be that hard. And Jonathan and Jerry were kind of working on a global scale to make that easier for everyone else around the world and helping them build off their dream careers. And so once I saw it, I was like, this is, this is how I can help.
1: Inspired by One Salting's mission, Giovanni messaged Jonathan and Jerry and asked to pitch a business idea she had for them. It was a bit unconventional, not something she would have done. But seeing others share their journey and reach out on LinkedIn for ad hoc opportunities encourage her to do so as well.
6: I feel like people are more personable and open to chat with you now that everybody's working from home. Whereas before, I feel like people were busy commuting, um, working on like their social life and all those extra components that come in when you're going home, going to work. I've seen a more openness um, with LinkedIn and how people are reaching out and building their community before people were posting like, oh my gosh, I got this job at XYZ company, but now it's more of that authentic story of I'm struggling to find a job, but here's what I'm doing in order to accomplish getting myself in a certain position. And I think we're seeing a bigger picture and the more openness that now people are willing to share and comment has driven like a whole different community. And I love that it's happening.
1: Her message to Jonathan and Jerry led to a meeting, which eventually led to her becoming a part of the One Salting team. Like Basan, taking a chance and creating an opportunity for herself during a period of lull not only helped Giovanni explore passion outside of her
6: professional identity, but also
1: introduced her to a new community that she could lean on for support.
6: I think my favorite interaction with consulting is the community that we're building around it because that's something we we forget as we're applying to jobs, you know, we're 50, 60 applications in and you might not be hearing back. It's very easy to give up and say, like, I don't want to do this anymore, but Being a part of that community and knowing that you're not the only one that's struggling or having to go through this together in a global pandemic, there is that strong support system and you can reach out to any member on the consulting team and people will respond, people will reach out and do what they can to help you. And I I don't know if there's a better takeaway than that. It's just a great community to be a part of.
1: Jovani Gudi, who works on special projects and strategy at One And before her, you heard Patsan Chinoda, a One mentee.
0: Special thanks to all of our guests this week. In our next episode, which will be our last for the time being, we'll hear from all of our guests about their plans for the future or the lack thereof. It will be a special double episode, so be prepared for
1: that. If you want to catch up on our previous episodes, find the links to all our social media, or send us a kind message, you can do so at sideeffectspod.com. That's S-I-D-E-E-F-F-E-C-T-S-P-O-D.com.
0: This episode was produced by Catherine and Nancy Shu along with Joshua Chan and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. The episode art is made by
1: Miranda Pan and Katrina Wu. Until next time, stay safe and be well. Thanks for tuning in.